First-person narratives from a unique grief journey. Facing Grief, Selected Essays. Facing Grief, Publishing. About these essays. Chances are you will if you have not already experienced some form of grief in your life. Grief can result from many situations. Some occur indirectly, or in my case, from a direct hit into the core of your life. In those indirect cases, we may be suffering and not even be realizing what is happening. Other times, the loss is so direct that the devastation is unmistakable. One of the most ironic things about grief is how little we know about it. Sure, you can find all kinds of material on the topic, written by a vast array of authors, doctors, educators, therapists, and so many more. The unique element of this journey on grief is that it unfolds chronologically. It is presented in the first person. It discusses the unique journey through grief due to the loss of a spouse. In my earliest days of my grief journey, I searched for material on grief. Overly constructed knowledge-based presentations did not help nor attract me. Knowledge was not a comfort. In fact, at times it was a bit presumptuous and overbearing. I was hurting. Knowledge was not the right medicine. What I found helpful were the first-person accounts of individuals struggling with their grief. Nothing I found took the horrible sting and pain of that early time away, but in the sharing of others' experiences, there was a level of comfort that was welcome. I am an authority on my own grief, and if you have the heart to explore with me, I would like to take you to my world. I would like to share with you my deepest and most innermost thoughts on the topic. In sharing where I am, my prayer is that you might find some comfort. I cannot say that I can comment on the vast array of grief resources that exist, but I can guess that a lot of the material has been written academically, written from an observer's perspective. What you are about to read comes from a participant's perspective. I am in this world, unwillingly for sure, but I am in it, and I can tell you about my situation as no other person can. And yes, some of that vast body of grief knowledge out there has been written by participants as well. In those areas, you will possibly find more relevant and helpful comfort, because in the world of grief that I know, knowledge just isn't really helpful or comforting. We will all share grief, either as a sufferer or a comforter. The common elements of both is that we have no idea what we are doing. As we journey together, it is my prayer that you may read some observation that may help you in some way. I have found comfort in other stories. My hope is that my story might strengthen you in your journey. How the Essays Came to Be The Backstory Many of us would say we have a specialty in our fields, something we are just good at. Sometimes it is there in the background. You may never actually be aware of it. Other times you may find out because your peers will tell you. Skills in our careers are sometimes the natural extension of a gift we have. Compassionate individuals become nurses. People who connect to people work in HR. And those with a vision may become part of management. Those special managers who help you grow beyond yourself because they share their vision. I have discovered over the years that my nature is analytical. Elements of my career grew around that ability. I really wasn't perceptive of it until later in life. As a person who, at my very core, wants to share, documentation in its many forms became an extension of that sharing nature and emerged as my passion. Communicating was the point. Explaining was the key. 
and from many years in consulting, I often took a different approach to knowledge. Don't be shocked if I told you that some hold on to information. They unfortunately come to believe that information defines them. They do not share because they do not know how to separate themselves from the knowledge, so they hold on to it. I, on the other hand, wanted to share, often to be able to leave an assignment where the perception was that I was valuable for some reason. My approach was to share the information so I could move on. I gave it away as a gift, but it was actually my ticket to catch the next flight out. I've been employed in positions where the actual official work was not all that fulfilling. But documenting, drawing a chart of complex systems so others could grasp it, well, now you're talking. When you're passionate about anything, that is not work. It is your passion. So communicating in charts and graphs and whatever I could use was floating my boat. In my last position, there was an HP plotter on my floor. Bad idea for them. For me, a tool to create more ways to communicate. Oh, how is the software development going? They might ask. Yeah, great, I would say. Now, how do I get back to that chart? Manuals were out. No one would read them. In a 140-character Twitter world, you do not have much time to make a point. So my work really became a marketing job. How do I get their attention and hopefully leave some usable knowledge behind when I'm done with them? Quick reference guides, charts, and diagrams that show the top level in an interesting way. I even got to the point where I used frequently asked questions as documentation. I would pose the questions, often in a conversational form, to engage the reader. It was a cat and mouse game, where I was the cat trying to trap the user and leave them a bit more knowledgeable when all was said and done. Upon my retirement, I thought I might use those skills for some future endeavor. Little was I to know how documenting and writing would be the life preserver I would be holding on to, holding on to for my very life. My wife became ill in 2011. A small cancer that had surfaced was removed at that time. In April 2015, we faced its return. It returned with a painful, debilitating vengeance. I took off three months from work to take care of her 24-7. And in September of that year, we found that the stage 4 metatastic breast cancer discovered in April had vanished from her CT scans. It was a true miracle we praised God for. I return to work now with her care as my only real mission beyond my job. In mid-July of 2019, things changed, I noticed for the worst. She never relented in her faith and resolved to move forward. Looking back, it was traumatic yet swift. She amazed everyone who came in contact with her. And even though she had the fears we all have, God gave her a strength that many have told me has changed their lives. I know it has forever changed mine. We had dreamed of my retirement as an opportunity to accomplish things that meant so much to us. But those dreams were not to be. She finished her race, my dear Joanne, in August of 2019. In my new reality of a loss I could not comprehend, losing a unique and precious love that I can hardly describe was an overwhelming reality that was beyond my ability to face. During the second week in this indescribable world, a strange thing happened. I began writing. Not on purpose, mind you. No, the writings came unexpectedly. I never knew when. I never really wrote them on purpose. They just arrived, often interrupting me on my way to some task or obligation, which were the only ways I was living any type of a life. When they came, I would be amazed at how formed they were, 
little stories of the pain, some observations on the experience, others the story of our amazing relationship. Many I could not even read out loud, a technique I used to help verbalize the awfulness and conquer what I could with God helping me the rest of the way. What happened here was we had an OCD systems analyst who has a passion for documenting and sharing trapped in the most awful place imaginable. A war correspondent, in a way, reporting the day-to-day awfulness of his life. This passion became my lifeline to a place beyond me, a place that I would have to reach somehow. Each essay, a link along that road. They would come about 20 a month. Each month I would declare a volume was completed and move on. Each a topic of the trip, each a step, a step in a fog from which I could see no end. Each volume would become a document. It is just what I do, a deliverable. Except the project now was my life. The implementation date? Who knows? My management has not told me when that will be. In December of 2019, I put together a website for the essays to live in. In my grief, I have found comfort in those who have bravely shared their grief stories. Through the website, I was going to share mine. I pray these writings will bring comfort to anyone in grief who long for those elusive moments of peace amidst the affliction. I am still on the journey. In a way, still working since documents and web authoring and structuring are a full-time job, I started narrating them as well. Verbalization has been very helpful in facing the unfaceable. But the struggle continues, continues, and imperceptibly keeps becoming less awful amidst the tears of each day. Where this will end, I do not know. But I do know that my passion for communicating has found another way to manifest itself. And this time, I not only fulfilled a project plan and helped some business users, with God's help, I found the way out of the most awful place I could have ever imagined. One essay at a time. Visit EssaysOnGrief.org to see how an overactive systems analyst in grief has faced the greatest challenge of his life with documentation. Preface to this group of essays. As a footnote, there came a time while writing the essays that I started narrating them as well. And, as I mentioned, verbalization has been very helpful in facing the unfaceable. On August 12, 2020, I assembled selected narrated essays as podcasts on the SoundCloud platform titled Facing Grief, the Podcast. 67 selected essays were released weekly until those series of essays ended their release November 21, 2021. Statistics showed people from many countries listened to groups of essays along with those in the United States. Visit soundcloud.com and search for Facing Grief, the essays, to hear the audio versions of the selected essays. The essays presented here are some of the most listened to on the podcast. As the essays were written chronologically as I traversed the grief journey, the selected essays will be introduced in the order when they were written, each reference being from the beginning of my journey, which began on August 12, 2019. Selected Essay 1, Coming Home. It will never be the same. Just two weeks past the end of my life, the reality was intense. The flurry of activity surrounding all of the arrangements was ending, and along with it, the warm embrace of so many who had stepped forward. Coming home describes the worst part of that time. 
From Volume 1, The First 30 Days, an essay written Thursday, August 29th, 2019, on Day 17 of the Journey, in the evening. We have come home hundreds, if not thousands, of times. It's just a normal part of life. But when there's been a loss, coming home will never be the same. In one sense, there is no home anymore. What home there was included the person now gone. There is a void, a hole, actually, a crater, where there had once been a home. Going home becomes one of the biggest reminders of the loss, one of the most difficult to face. When you're out dealing with something, there may be a tug, an unsettled feeling that the new reality exists, but stepping inside that door activates a new level of awkwardness. Something is missing. Really missing. It's something you can't ignore only endure. Instead of home being your safe place, a place of family and love, it becomes the place where the family and love used to be. Oh sure, there are memories and all, they are important, but at the moment you open that door, the resounding reality announces what you know deep in your heart. You are now alone. Everything in the home screams the presence of the one who is gone. In my case, I play my grief logic routine. I know she is safe. She is no longer suffering. God took her. I was there when he did. And in my case, she was good with all of that. Well, that's great for her. There's just one little problem. I'm still here. Home becomes the epicenter of my progress. How was it today? Oh, not too bad. Did you cry right away or did it take a while? It's the yardstick of my grief. Just step in the door and just look who's waiting for you. Grief. And he brought his friends emptiness and despair. What a party. Coming home in the afternoon is preferable to coming home in the evening. Darkness just seems to make it ever so much more distasteful. So I pray and focus on what I can, just resting, preparing a meal, answering emails, or perhaps writing an essay such as this one. These activities do have their part. But when grief tries to take me to a place I do not want to go to, I just jump ahead and go to there myself. I go through my grief logic routine. I focus on her, not the past. When I get to my endless love for her, that's when I pray for supernatural help. And although it is the worst of the worst moments for me, I use it to beseech God that in my view, he made this decision to take her and only he can supply me with the power to understand what life will be like without her. I cannot do that, nor at my deepest inner level do I want to be separated from her, but I am. So the exercise will continue. I have been writing a lot this week, and interestingly, it helps at some background level. Not enough to change the despair and longing for the impossible, but I sense a small movement. I know my prayer will be answered. I know that coming home will not be so difficult. I ask God to turn my grief into strength. Take this anguish and turn it into building material, material so I can build a legacy for my love and my sweetheart. This, I feel, can happen. It's just not happening yet. Coming home will get better. When will that be? I just have to keep coming home to find out. And find out he did. In our second day of today's episode, from Volume 3, Transitions, Day 83. Here is essay number 15, 
Coming Home Revisited. Coming Home Revisited. Written Sunday, November 3rd, 2019, Day 83, Morning. In Volume 1, Essay 9, I wrote about coming home. Home was a toxic place at that point, a place to be endured since the very act of entering was a profound reminder of the emptiness and despair of my life. Now at Day 83, I can report that there has been a change. When I come home now, there is no longer that breathtaking wave of awfulness that seemed to be waiting for me. Coming home has become sort of neutral. In grief, neutral is almost joyful. Neutral because the lack of overwhelming waves of emotion, those waves that I do not want to experience, are refreshingly absent. And that is quite welcome. The heaviness has been lifted. My wife and I had this little thing we did when we came home. We opened the door and declared, We're home! So most of the time, that has been one of those taunting memories. One of those memories that sees you coming and just can't wait to work you over for a while. Now when I open the door, I say, I'm home! And it doesn't sting a bit. So in that sense, coming home has improved. As I wrote in the original essay, coming home is the epicenter of my progress. And using the original measurement, I no longer cry when I enter the house. Not right away, or even after I am home for a while. Things seem matter-of-fact in a general way. Now don't start celebrating. There is a perceptible sense of potential sadness everywhere. It's just that now it is an element I can invoke if I'm not careful, so I try not to encourage anything that would activate it. But those waves of sadness and despair are no longer there when I come home. I go through the whatever routines of coming home there are, sort of in a matter-of-fact way. So that is an actual good thing. Coming home is also the yardstick of my grief. So if grief can be measured, I no longer receive the attention from the welcoming committee of grief and its friends. In that sense, this is an amazing moment. Coming home has become sort of normal. The hope that I hear in the background, the hope that I have heard through its tiny, tiny voice over these past months, has just become slightly louder. I can't wait for the day I come home and find that hope has moved in with me. Selected Essay 2, The Perfect Storm. One is bad enough. In some cases, we may face more than we can comprehend in our grief journey. Beyond the immediate loss and aftermath, there can be other losses that we did not realize at first. In this essay, we reflect on several additional reasons why this grief journey would be particularly difficult. From Volume 1, The First 30 Days, an essay written Thursday, September 5, 2019, on day 24 of the journey in the evening. In the movie The Perfect Storm, a fishing vessel becomes trapped in the confluence of several significant storms that combined into something called the perfect storm. What is a perfect storm? A web service called Freebase says this, A perfect storm is an expression that describes an event where a rare combination of circumstances will aggravate a situation drastically. The term is also used to describe an actual phenomena that happens to occur in such a confluence, resulting in an event of unusual magnitude.
in my grief story, that is exactly where I am. It struck me that I have several additional forces at work on me. Apart from the loss of my wife, looking back, it was orderly in a weird kind of way. During that time, there was a calm yet unsettled feeling because I could see where it was heading. I had no regrets about many things, and in the end, I was with her, and so were the important people God called together. That doesn't take away the overwhelming grief and despair that I face, but at least there is not guilt, perceived misopportunities, or other factors that would cause more intensity, if that were even possible. I had a strange marriage. I loved my wife dearly. I wanted to be with her. I would kid her that I'd been chasing her for 40-plus years now, and I could finally catch her. I told her I loved her every day and took care of her no matter what it cost me personally. Beyond our marriage, we grew up in the same area, Buffalo, New York. She's Italian. I am a calm, quiet Englishman. Back in those early days, her family had a store right around the corner from where my parents and I lived. My mother worked part-time in their store. We knew each other's families. This was a deeper bond than most people share. It added to the richness of our lives together. Until 2015, I became her caregiver. I took off three months of work to do that, not really caring if I had a job when I got back, which I did. I continued the care as I worked full-time, giving her everything I could. So the loss I am experiencing is profound on so many levels. Wrapping our heads around the fact that the person is no longer here is just not possible for an indefinite time period as far as I can see. Losing my sweetheart with all our history and the love between us generates a tsunami of emotions that there is just not any defense for. It just comes and sweeps me away. Plus, we did everything together, so as I think about doing anything, she is at the center of it. There's a kind of pain associated with that lost connection which cannot register on any scale that I can construct. So not only is the death beyond comprehension, half of my life operationally is also wiped out. The majority of the activities in my life have her at their core. The paralyzing effect of this combination of lost elements is just beyond what these puny words can convey. So that's why it hurts so much. I do the administrative things fine, as well as things I used to do on my own without her, but my life was inextricably intertwined with hers. How in the world does this become unraveled? Even if I wanted it. The paradox is striking. I cannot operate without her, and without her, I cannot operate. It makes the orderly systems analyst in me have a major logic meltdown. Motions and logic really don't mix. You can mix oil and vinegar salad dressing more easily. They don't combine well on their own, but shake them up for a while, and they will mix. This logic just cannot even exist on the same page together with these strong emotions. So my prayer is for God to help me figure out how I will ever operate again. The high state of apathy I feel right now has to be a result of the impasse. I really can't focus on the things I used to. I can't really watch TV and the things we watched together without her. When I think of an activity, I'm stopped in my tracks if she had any part of it in the past. I am totally immobilized. I still need her, and yet she is no longer here. And she was good with what was coming. She had been prepared and accepted the final decision God made, 
We had a miracle in 2015, and this time we would not. It's just me now that's suffering. I don't have a caregiver, and I'm in charge of everything and feel ill-equipped to have that responsibility. I have the perfect storm of grief. All I know is that storms eventually pass. Storms end, the skies clear, and the sun comes out again. I long for that day. I know it is coming. I pray it would be tomorrow. Selected Essay 3, Tears. They lead the way, if you let them. Five weeks and four days into the journey, the struggle was constant. And on this day, it was time to write about the byproduct of the struggle, tears. From Volume 2, One Day at a Time, an essay written Friday, September 20th, 2019, on Day 39 of the Journey, in the Afternoon. Tears are the byproduct of grief. They regularly flow, and as I have come to learn, are not something to be afraid of. Looking back to my pre-grief life, that was not the case. I was afraid of tears. Somehow in our culture, tears are a sign of weakness, something to be pitied. Tisk tisk, they would say. Look at how emotional they are. Yet as I am learning, tears are the result of our grief. For me, they come quite regularly, but not on any schedule. They come as I am reflecting on something. During that time, bam, there they are. This week, it seems, they are a result of my mourning for my lost future with my dear wife, the plans we had, the things we had been anticipating for so long. The logic impasse, foreboding to me. The plans were there, now she is not. But here I am, with all the plans and artifacts of the plans all around me. It is hard to know how this will change. I'm not letting her go, perhaps, and the elements of life that are a part of our shared dreams are hard to ignore. Their power right now is immense. None of that is going to happen, so I have to be okay with that. But I'm not. But I have to be. But I'm not. And so it goes. The tennis match of thought continues. I want to be settled in her peace, the end of suffering, that she was all right with it, what was coming. My love for her is a constant in my life. How does that change without her here? To those on the other side of grief, it boils down to getting on with things, moving to the future. But for me, right now, a future without her is just plain undesirable. It is nothing to be looking forward to. Because I can't look forward. So the tears continue to flow. How does this precious relationship now ended have a resolution on my side? I can't end it. I won't end it. The relationship is me. It defines me. And any new definition that does not include her in it is no definition I really want, thank you. Then more tears. The road to the future, then, will be a wet one. And for that, I'm not going to complain. I want to tell everyone how the tears are not a problem, that we should share them. Perhaps I'll need to demonstrate that as I go forward. It won't be difficult to do. There are plenty of them to go around. Do not be upset when they appear. You are free to join me. I won't complain. You are no less a person for crying with me. In fact, you are a giant. You honor my sweetie when you do and make my journey just a bit more tolerable. And I will advance at one point. It will take time. 
and tears to accomplish, one day at a time, one tear at a time. Selected Essay 4, Calling, Painful Obligation. Reliving any pain is not desirable, yet in the state of grief we run into this situation quite regularly. And in no other area is this pain more real than in the seemingly simple mundane task of calling to report the extraordinary change in your life. From Volume 3, Transitions, an essay written on Wednesday, November 6, 2019, day 86 of the journey in the morning. Of all the awful elements that are a part of this world of grief, there is one that is particularly difficult. There's no way around the task. It is just as inevitable as the moment that brought you into the world of grief. Calling to report what happened. For me, it is distasteful in so many ways. One of the most distressing is having to talk about the most destructive, gut-wrenching, and debilitating event in your life to a rather clerical person. It's not their fault, I know. They're just doing their job, but the job is rather sterile, rather clerical, rather procedural. And there you are, trying to compose yourself as you tick through the data that relates to the situation. Getting the courage to make the call is one thing. I'm amused at myself that I thought I would be able to do this sooner. In my case, with my unique situation, doing this any earlier than today was just unthinkable. So when the moment finally comes and you are resolved to take action, there is the next hurdle you have to face. Making the actual call. These days, your call is received by an automated system. There, you have to listen to the options and make your choice. Once there, the next obstacle presents itself. Music on hold. Here you must listen to some generic, often bouncy little pieces of music. Mine was a mix of bouncy music followed by some stylized classical items, most likely to try to keep you awake. In my case, while on hold, I am in full anticipation mode, awaiting the moment when I have to launch my dialogue. Oh good, a pause in the music. Here we go. Nope, the music just shifted to another selection. And there we sit. sitting in another world of pent-up emotions, awaiting our moment to step out on the stage to state the reason why we are calling. That is the beginning of the difficulty. Finally, a person. Here we go. I'd like to report a death. Stinging words at one level, Verbalization of the thoughts that you have been struggling with. There they go. They are out. Then we go through the details of the call. What I need to do. What they are doing. It all went well. I had not had to make too many of these calls. This was the first. There's an additional call that I will have to make, but I think that will be on tomorrow's agenda. 
For all we have to deal with in grief, the majority of it is in our heads. We struggle every day with whatever we are struggling with. At this stage of the timeline, the immediate conversations about our situation have long been over. We are in the how are you doing portion of the program. It is a project in itself to communicate that information. But to have to call, that takes you right back to ground zero. When was the date of death, they ask? And there you go, right back to it. But not for long. I refuse to stay there if I'm forced to repeat the date. No, I will not allow that to make me sad. There's enough here in the present date to do that. The only good thing is that I will not have to make too many more calls. I want to leave that time and deal with where I am at the present time. Just a few more calls, and then I'll be done. Selected Essay 5, Neutrality. Nothing is something. Intensity is one of the standards of grief. So when a time comes when intensity changes, that is a time which is stunning in its simplicity. In this essay, we will hear about that most stunning time, a time when nothing actually becomes something. From Volume 4, Signposts, an essay written Monday, November 18, 2019, on Day 98 of the Journey, in the Late Morning. Usually neutrality is sort of boring. After all, it represents, well, nothing at all. That is why it is so boring. It is neither one way or the other. It is in the middle firmly in the middle with nary a trace of either side that it could be. Think of the space between the double yellow lines on the roadway. That's the proverbial middle of the road. Being neutral is like that. In the state of grief, though, neutrality is really something. I never really caught this until I experienced it. You can act like you're scared, as actors try to do, or you could actually be facing a life-threatening situation and really be scared. In the state of grief, we are dealing with real and powerful forces. They manifest themselves in the most extreme emotions you have ever experienced in your life. Yes, I mean ever. It is the difference between acting scared and being scared. Once inside, you see that a lot of your prior emotions, while powerful in their own way, powerful in the extreme situations you may have faced in your prior life, are no match for what you now experience in the world of grief. Intensity on a scale you never dreamed of. And really, how could you? In those days, we reacted that way, but as normal humans. In grief, you are in a different place. A place where your world is magnified, and not in a good way. No, the superlatives of good do not apply in grief. There is no good there. There is no love, joy, peace, nothing of good report. The closest we can get to good in grief is neutral. For you see, in the state of grief, any cessation of the intensity, despair, loneliness, emptiness, any relief from it, that relief is a welcome change, a refreshing change. Because the atmosphere becomes calm. Not because the storm has passed, but because there is a lull in the storm. And that lull 
is neutrality. I first experienced it after a period of extreme intensity. Intensity is what we normally experience, and that's really saying a lot. Intensity of anything is an experience. In the state of grief, however, extreme intensity is normal. After that period of intensity, I felt strange. Strange because there had been a constant and unyielding undercurrent of all that grief has to offer. It's like that all-hits radio station, but it is grief that is picking the songs, and they are all downers. It was such a strange feeling to actually have no feeling. What was this, I mused? This is certainly not normal because there is always something playing, but right now, for the moment, there is nothing. Wow. Welcome to neutrality. And boy, was nothing ever more welcome. It was an oasis in the desert of painful emotions, a rest area on the highway to despair. It was refreshing. Dare I say, almost positive. But it wasn't. It was just neutral. And that's fine for now. In recent weeks, I've experienced a discernible reduction in the intensity of my grief sessions. They do not grip me like a dog playing with its stuffed toy anymore. They bite for sure, and all the accompanying worst that grief can offer is still present. But it's just not a pot at full boil lately. It's a slow simmer with an occasional uptick in intensity. That's a welcome change. Who knows, maybe I'll be able to inch past neutrality at some future point. Stick my toe into the other side. I can dream. Dream that one day neutrality will just be a waypoint as I emerge in the future that is awaiting me. This concludes part one of Facing Grief, Selected Essays, the audiobook draft. In part two, we will present the remaining essays.